this is not a humanising poem. Some poems force you to write them. The way sirens force their way through window panes in the night and you can't shut out the news, even when you try. Write a humanising poem, my pen and paper goad me. Show them how wrong their preconceptions are. The voice you're hearing is that of Sahima Manzor Khan. She's a poet and educator and she's frustrated. It bothers me that we are still not able to live safe lives. We are not able to live freely. Black people are being murdered on the streets. People of colour are being deported from this country. Working class people are dying in the homes that they live in because they set on fire because they were not deemed to be valuable enough to have money invested. And so I want to ask what it is that the women's movement has done for us, for those of us who are women but who are not seen to be women. And I want it to be able to be a world in which we are all able to access justice and freedom without any of us having to step on another. My name is Sahima Manzor Khan and I have unfinished business. Welcome to Unfinished Business, the podcast that explores how feminist activism in the UK has its roots in the complex history of women's rights. I'm Polly Russell, a curator responsible for Unfinished Business, an exhibition at the British Library which sadly has had to close thanks to the pandemic. The exhibition is fantastic, so when it opens again, please do come and visit. But for the time being, we have this podcast for you. We wanted to get really deep into some of the themes of the exhibition. Themes like mental health, sexual pleasure, domestic violence, to comedy, to cycling and more. In every episode, a different co-presenter with an area of expertise or a burning question to ask will be using objects from the exhibition to explore ideas and themes. Today, we have the incredible Sahima exploring the complex but important subject of intersectionality. I'll let today's guests get us started. Listen, you're a bunch of white girls. Get real. Racism is profoundly structuring of women's lives in this country. If your movement is going to speak to Caribbean, Asian, African women, then it needs to deal with racism. When I first was introduced to feminism and my mom was just like, nah, feminism is just not free. It's not for us. The feminists that we saw on TV more often than not were the feminists like advocating for Muslims to like take off their hijab. I don't go through the day, you know, being at one moment a woman, at another moment a Muslim, at another moment not white. When I thought about my experiences in the world, sexism was never a lone kind of force. And I don't think enough white feminists really sit with what it means that they're <laughs> at no point in time in history have you actually proven yourself to be an ally in terms of like what you are actually doing on the ground on a regular to actually like make my life more livable. Sahima, activist Gail Lewis and academic Azizat Johnson, who we'll be hearing more from later in this podcast. Intersectionality is something we were really aware of while curating the exhibition at the British Library. We tried to think about women's rights through an intersectional lens, but to be honest, it's a concept which is banded about a lot, but perhaps not fully understood. And I hold my hands up here. Since I've been working on this exhibition, I've been trying to understand what intersectionality means and how to use it. This is why I wanted this podcast episode to happen and why I wanted Sahima to host it. 
We're not just exploring what intersectionality means here, but its implications, what it insists on, whether it can be misappropriated, and what it means to think and act through an intersectional lens. Let's start by getting to know our guest presenter, Sahima. I was born in Bradford to parents who were themselves born in Pakistan. So they came to this country aged, you know, sort of six months and one year. That story has shaped me quite a lot in the sense that it's a real British story of diaspora, I guess. Um, and then I myself, you know, by the time I went to university, I kind of decided I wanted to study history. I ended up going to Cambridge, which was, you know, quite surprising uh, at the time. And I think being a visibly Muslim woman in a very white, very middle class educational setting was, I think, politicised me in a way that nothing else really could have. I was really interested to read in one of your essays, you said brownness and Islam were just an aspect of your being, just the side to the main spectacle of me, referring to what it was like growing up and your childhood, but that this moment mm. when you went to Cambridge, that changed. And I found that really moving. Could you talk about that? Yeah. You know, what I'm trying to say there, I think, was tapping into this feeling that all my life, I hadn't really had to be confronted with the fact that I was othered. And that's just because, you know, the area that I grew up in, the schools that I went to, there were plenty of people who had a similar experience to mine, or at least were kind of viewed in the same way. But I think being so starkly able to see suddenly in this situation where, you know, it's largely white, middle to upper class, privately schooled people that I actually wasn't just viewed as like, oh, another person in the lot of students. I was a Muslim, I was, you know, not white. And I think that suddenly meant that I had to shift the kind of the way I approached who I was in the world, because it wasn't as simple to just say, there's a, you know, there's inequality between men and women, that's not fair. It was like, hang on, nobody's even seeing me first and foremost as a woman or a girl in this space. You know, I'm actually first and foremost, this kind of potential foreign other suspect, slightly weird, slightly unknown entity. And that was gendered, of course, but it didn't really have, my gender wasn't at the forefront of that. While at the University of Cambridge, Sahima joined FLY, a group set up by three black women. It was a network and forum for women of colour at the university, and FLY stands for Freedom, Love, You. The group subsequently wrote a book, A Fly Girl's Guide to University, Being a Woman of Colour at Cambridge and Other Institutions of Elitism and Power. It's a collection of memoirs, essays and poems based on conversations that they had while studying together. Sahima has also written a collection of poetry called Post-Colonial Banter. It features the poem you heard at the start of the episode. And we included this poem in the exhibition at the British Library. It's such a powerful evocation of the experience of being a Muslim woman in the UK at the moment. Be relatable. Write something upbeat for a change. Crack a smile. Tell them how you also cry at the end of Toy Story 3 and you're just as capable of bantering about the weather in the post office queue. The day that I wrote it was the day after the London Bridge attack. So I was living in London. I'd been to the mosque the night before that and, you know, the sort of special congregational prayers, Tarawi prayers during Ramadan. And as I came out of the mosque, I had a text from my mum on my phone and the text just said, you know, I don't know if you've seen the news, but be careful on your way home. And... I think that feeling that that kind of evoked in me it was really hard to describe and capture. And, and I was trying in that poem to capture it. Sahima's referring to a terrorist attack that happened in London in June 2017. Eight people were killed and 48 were injured. 
the so-called Islamic State later claimed responsibility. I was trying to write a poem, responding to my feelings in that moment. But what I kept writing was a poem that was really an apology, actually. It was uh, an apology for being Muslim. It was a kind of attempt to remove myself from the kinds of Muslims who had been involved in the London Bridge attack. It was an attempt to say, you know, I've grown up with Muslims who are funny. I know Muslims who are really lovely. Muslims have done nice things. And I think every time I wrote an iteration of it, I was just so frustrated because it was like, this is not, this is not the poem I want to write. So this will not be a Muslims are like us poem. I refuse to be respectable. Instead, Lovers when we're lazy, lovers when we're poor, lovers in our back-to-backs, council estates, depressed, unwashed and weeping, lovers high as kites, unemployed, joyriding, time-wasting, failing at school, lovers filthy, without the right colour passports, without the right salary. I just want to sort of get onto this question of intersectionality and sort of thinking about it and naming it and to ask you what it means to you. How do you understand that? I was introduced to intersectionality definitely through Fly. And I think, you know, a big part of that was being with other women of colour, trying to understand our experiences in the world. And so the way it was introduced to me was this term that has coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. She's this black feminist, but she's a lawyer as well. And that original thing and the reason she coined it was to explain that within employment law, there was no way to describe the experiences of black women. You couldn't kind of just talk about sexism. You couldn't just talk about racism. Lawyer Kimberly Crenshaw first used the term in the late 1980s, and in 2016, she presented a TED talk called The Urgency of Intersectionality. Many years ago, I began to use the term intersectionality to deal with the fact that many of our social justice problems like racism and sexism are often overlapping creating multiple levels of social injustice. So what do you call being impacted by multiple forces and then abandon to fend for yourself? Intersectionality seemed to do it for me. You know, moving forward and kind of taking that definition to my own life, as myself in the world, I don't go through the day, you know, being at one moment a woman, at another moment a Muslim, at another moment not white, especially in my kind of coming to or or working with women activists and feminists was that we couldn't talk about sexism as this whole, as this thing that operated. Because when I thought about my experiences in the world, sexism was never a lone kind of force. You've mentioned feminism there, and of course this exhibition that this series is connected to is about women's rights in the UK. And I really wanted to ask you, because I know it's got such a kind of difficult, vexed history, I wanted to ask you what what that means to you. You know, do you call yourself a feminist? What does feminism look like? Yeah, it's definitely, I would say, a very uh, contested relationship that I have with the word, with the movement. And I think with my own experiences then working kind of within feminism, what I recognised was that I was never first and foremostly seen as a woman. And that, to me, then, is a really huge issue because if I was seen first and foremostly as a Muslim, it meant that if we talk only about women's rights, this idea of who a woman is always excluded me and, I, and my, my rights would always be kind of <laughs> coming later. And one huge contestation for me is that I think there's this real uh, attachment of feminism to kind of this idea of like a secular objectivity and being always pitted as like, as a Muslim, if you're too attached to religion, if you're a bit too Muslim, you're kind of seen as problematic, I think. And the other thing is that, you know, feminism has 
been historically and contemporarily, I think the handmaiden to racism, Islamophobia and colonialism. And I, and I say that in the sense that, you know, we can look at examples like the uh, colonial occupations of Egypt, of Algeria, where you have um, these colonizers justifying their occupation, their kind of ravaging of these economies, exploitation of these um, people's kind of entire education systems in the name of women's rights. We're going to save these women. You know, the reason these civilizations are backwards is because of the way they treat their women. It's really impossible for me to have a steady or happy relationship to a term that has, or a history or a movement that has so been used to kind of harm, uh, exclude and erase, you know, myself, but also people like me. So I say, yeah, I say it's a very kind of critical relationship and it's, and it's more like I think I find it a useful lens to have lots of conversations like this. But I wanted to know what Sahima was hoping to learn from hosting this podcast and speaking to the guests. I think what I would really like to get out of this episode is an idea as to why and how intersectionality really can provide this vital, I think, lens to understanding not only women's lives, but, you know, the entire way that we see the world. But I also actually would like to get out of it some sort of idea about whether intersectionality has been somewhat misused, perhaps misappropriated, and even co-opted, so that sometimes I think the ways that we see it being used today are perhaps not the ways that it was intended to help us think about oppression. And so to explore these areas, Sahima decided she wanted to speak to academic and activist Gail Lewis. Gail was a co-founder of the Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent, OWAD. The founding of this activist organization in 1978 has been called a watershed in the history of black women's rights activism. Sahima was keen to speak to Gail to take a look backwards. There's sort of a really linear and odd teleology that kind of just stems from, oh, the suffragettes, they kind of gave women their rights, and then here we are today in 2020, and there's no sort of nuance or journey. There is no kind of political category in which to kind of frame our demands and our needs. So it's dangerous. It's dangerous when we don't remember these things. And the conversation started with a really nice surprise for Sahima. Yeah, I've got your book, Postcolonial Banter. Oh, no yeah, way. and I just, I mean, I love all the poems, but I really love Nanny. Oh, that's really made my day. She smells like untouched snow and morning mountain dew. Her fingers peel potato skins like unwrapping giggles from children's lips. She coaxes rice grains into scoops and evaluates inexact measurements exactly. And this is germane, really, to what we're talking about. I love it because what it does is, in situated in a collection of your work that shows the multiple forms in which racism, Islamophobia takes place in this country and for your generation. With Nani, you just show, well, all of this goes on, all of this racism, and it really structures our lives, but life goes on. We still live our lives as black, as Asian, as Muslim. Soft, soft, soft stomach, hands, cheeks, occasional tears in an ostracised tongue, rocking back and forth on her prayer chair. Fingers count beads like knitting patterns long forgotten. And Nani just takes us into a domestic space, it seems to me, with a beautiful, you know, evocation from a granddaughter of her grandmother. I really, no, that, that means a lot. And I, and it, I think earlier I was just talking to Polly about sort of 
when we have conversations around women's rights, I think it's there's this almost this pressure to talk in terms of big P politics and, you know, what legislation was passed. And and actually, I was reading, I think you wrote it a long time ago, but it's sort of an essay about your mother and growing up yeah. and, and these kinds of things. And I, I think that said more to me about kind of politics of care and yeah. the politics that you might root yourself in. Yeah, absolutely. So you're referring, I think, to the piece called Birthing Racial Difference, Conversations yes. with My Mother and Others. Where I come from in the sense of, you know, growing up between these two households, a black household and a white household, in the sense that my mum and dad, that household I call the black household because of where we lived in Kilburn, and then my maternal grandmother's household, the white household. Okay. There's something about what I learned as a child, if or what I observed, what I felt as a child about oh, my God, this is complex, isn't it? All this stuff around class yeah. politics because my grandmother's house was really a, a socialist household, you know. It was mm. in tune with working-class struggle, identified with working-class struggle, but it was a white household. And yeah. there was all the difficulties experienced by my maternal grandfather about having a black granddaughter. He didn't like it at all. Okay. You know, um, and there was the racism in there. So it was structured right at the kitchen table, as it were, you know. Yeah, it was so right, intimate. Right, yeah. yeah, exactly. So where I come from, yeah, is that eventually, of course, a theory of intersectionality, a kind of intersectional feminism emerges that gives me the conceptual tools to begin to make sense of my narration of my life. So along with other women, including Stella Dadzi and Olive Morris, Gail founded OWAD, a broadly socialist national organisation. And we said we need a national black women's organisation. We need to try and coordinate in a way that we can support each other across campuses and local communities to bring together the issues and to keep the links with anti-imperialist struggles from home, from our homelands. Wow. Okay. So that was the kind of logics, the conversations I was in. And what was really interesting about it was we thought we'd call ourselves the National Black Women's Organisation. But there was a conversation that happened inside those meetings, I seem to remember, is where those of us from this country and those who were here to study but were from, say, South Africa or Zimbabwe, the mm. term black had meaning. In other words, it had meaning because we were living in white-dominated societies. But the sisters from Eritrea, Ethiopia, Nigeria, they were saying, black? What's black? I'm yeah. Nigerian or I'm this ethnic yeah. group. From, you know, black doesn't mean anything to me. Right. So we change it to Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent. That explains a lot. OK. <laughs> I, I think trying imagining sort of organizing that's spanning university spaces, local communities, international diasporas and international locations and politics mm. and in that anti-imperialist moment is so exciting. And it's also interesting because I in the memory that I suppose institutional memory of women's lib, yeah. that just does not like that those two things seem to me like completely separate stories. So was there an interaction there or what was going on with women's lib in that relationship or was there one? Some of us, and I was one of the people, were connected to the kind of women's liberation movement organisations. There was some connection, and sometimes, like, from the Brixton group, we'd send a rep that would go to something, but we'd go as representatives of the Brixton Black Women's right. Group, say. And, of course, what we were wanting to inject was, listen, you're a bunch of white girls, get real... Racism is profoundly structuring of women's lives in this country. 
if your movement is going to speak to black women, women of co- we didn't call women of colour then, but Caribbean, Asian, African women, then it needs to deal with racism. At the same time, there were many sisters in our movement, in the black feminist movement, who said, no, no, let's not trouble with them. We've got too much to do ourselves. So I suppose how I would characterise it now, we had our own version of feminism and we were really developing it. It was never, ever, ever disconnected from the question of racism, which was always had to be to the fore. And trying to take that up in the women's liberation movement was was really hard. Members of OWAD campaigned about issues like immigration, housing, exclusion of children from schools, industrial action by black women, policing and defence policies, and health and reproductive rights. In the exhibition at the British Library, we're displaying some objects from OWAD's campaign to establish a supplementary school for black children. This was a direct response to the fact that children from diverse ethnic minority backgrounds experience marginalisation and are disproportionately excluded or identified as disruptive in mainstream schools. Children's education became a focus for black women's activism. Here's an infrastructure around Saturday schools. Yeah. Yeah, that go across the country, which are an intervention on the part of our parents who are saying... Our children are really being done harm in the schools here. We need to do something. And often those interventions were organised under women mobilising as mothers. Yes. So so whilst in the women's movement there was all this seeming, moving away from the category mother as though that was the thing that women shouldn't be defined at by themselves as mothers. But for us as black women, it was exactly as mothers that we were organising politically. Galen Sahima went on to reflect on black feminist politics today and what's changed since the days of OWAD. You see, one of the things that I would say now, and I'm supposed to be writing a book on black feminism in Britain, and one of the things I want that I think is a, is a shift from my generation to your generation is the idea of needing to centre a politics of care for us. Mm. Hmm. So if you take the supplementary schools thing, of course yeah. that's about practices of care for our young ones, but we're not thinking about care for ourselves. Yeah. And I think that a big shift has happened in black feminism praxis in this country is hmm. a centering of the question of care as a politics of opposition, a politics of refusal. Life cannot yeah. be, won't be lived in the status quo. And centre to that is we're going to do a politics of care for ourselves and that is a black feminist ethic. Mm. And I think that's a shift. But I guess maybe something I sense though is there was, or there is still, I think, that desire for whiteness. Where does that come in? Where people, I think even the vernacular people have where it's kind of like wanting to be, or essentially not wanting to be the other, I think. Yeah. God, it's so complicated, isn't it? Because I think whiteness as an horizon of properness, you know, to be a proper person, a a real human, to draw on Sylvia Winter, to meet the image of white bourgeois masculinity. That's what a real human is. Yeah. If you can live up to that, you'll kind Mm. of be left alone. Now, I think that, in our communities, I mean, it's used to discipline us. Okay, and in that context, then I think Mm. an intersectional analysis is really important because what it absolutely insists on is that we can't understand 
the character of women's lives without understanding that there is no such thing as women's lives, only in articulation with the racialization, the racial structuring of society, the class structuring of society. And within that structure, because if whiteness is a horizon, some people called women will be real women and some people won't really. So intersectionality is really, really important, I think, for understanding the systemic and ongoing patterning of inequalities. But I would make a distinction between that, you see, and Uh a black feminism of refusal. And the point is, is a black feminism of refusal organised around an ethic of care says we will keep on doing our life under the radar in re- refusing the status quo, yeah. that is not livable, and we're showing you how we can live life differently. Yeah. And so I think there's two strands of black feminism, if you like. There's an intersectional feminism, but then there's a black feminism of refusal. That's really interesting. And I think, for me, like when you, the way you're describing as well, sort of politics of refusal and, and care, and I, I feel like, as somebody who, who believes in God and has faith, like faith for me becomes a politics of refusal because it's yes. kind of like, I don't have to adhere to the the names, the labels, the categories of, of splitting myself, essentially, you know, I'm not, I don't walk through the day and I'm a Muslim woman yes. of Asian yes. descent. I'm actually first and foremost, a soul and a being and all these things that can't really be captured, I think, metaphysically. We're not about inclusion into the status quo. The status quo is not livable. So that's not what intersectionality is about. It's about revealing the character of the status quo. Mm -hmm. So all this bollocks, excuse me, but I have to say about, you know, diversity and inclusion is is one way to rob us of our politics. Yes, I think you've captured that really perfectly. And I think, is there any maybe piece of advice or learning that you would particularly like to share or final thoughts if not? Oh, my God. That's a big question. I mean, the <laughs> reason why I feel I'm developing still as a black feminist in Britain is because I'm learning from your generation and the generation between us. I'm learning through the art practices that you do, like the poetry you produce, the music that's produced. I'm learning from the idea that we have to centre a politics of care mm. as foundational to our mm. practice. And for an old woman, that matters, you know. But for a young woman, it matters too. I suppose what I'm saying is, is the key thing, I think, is the intergenerational communications. And they can be difficult, Hmm. but learning from each other so that we be good ancestors now to enable you guys to be good ancestors and good Hmm. children back to us so that we can learn from each other. That's so beautiful. And that's what I think, yeah. Thank you, girl. Thank you so much. Really a great pleasure. Wow, I found that riveting and completely thought-provoking. I particularly loved the emphasis on the black feminism of refusal and an ethic of care. Their conversation really had me thinking about the difficulty of doing intersectionality properly, as it were, but so too did Sahima's next guest who joined us through a video call. Hi, Salaam Alaikum Aziza. I'm really excited to be speaking to you. Yeah, let's do this. Meet academic Azizat Johnson. I grew up in Denmark, came over to the UK when I was around 17 to do all of my education. Yeah, like ended up with a PhD from Sheffield where I was focusing on intersectionality and really thinking about 
how we situate the clothing practices of Black Muslim women, and how we really think about the boundaries and borders that are actually enforced through our everyday lived existence, right? Um, Hmm. So how do we think about intersectionality as like a language that is helping us address erasure, right? The erasure of particular bodies within our, our different contexts. Erasure is a key theme when discussing intersectionality. And it connects really closely to the very first object visitors see when they enter the unfinished business exhibition at the British Library, a self-portrait by the British Gambian artist Khadija Say. Her work explores the relationship between body, trauma and spirituality. She was tragically killed along with 71 others as a result of the Grenfell Tower fire in 2017. The first report from an inquiry into the disaster stated that the building's exterior did not comply with regulations and this was the central reason why the fire spread. And it's the social makeup of Grenfell Tower that really highlights where the combined effects of class and race inequality meet. In fact, geographer Danny Dawling has shown that black and minority ethnic people in social housing are disproportionately housed in flats to the extent that, and I quote from him, The majority of children who live above the fourth floor of tower blocks in England are black or Asian. Say's series is titled Dwellings in This Space We Breathe, and they are tintypes, a fragile and volatile method of printing. The haunting nature of Say's remarkable work of art, which seems to challenge the viewer to encounter her in all her complexity, is a reminder of how women from different backgrounds in the past and today have had to fight to be taken on their own terms and in many cases to be recognised at all. Say's work grapples with questions of who is seen and heard, who is ignored, devalued and erased, whether from a cultural consciousness or from archives or from presence in public life. I'll let Sahima and Azizat take over from here because there's a lot to unpack. What do you take from the fact that this is in the exhibition and what does Khadija Sire's work kind of, what should we kind of be asking in light of looking and, and taking in her work? Yeah, like how was this curated is actually, I think, a really interesting question to ask rather than necessarily Definitely. like my specific interpretation because, you know, we spoke about this a little bit before beforehand in terms of how we might approach this conversation. And I think both of us were talking about the kind of discomfort. Specifically, I found it really difficult after Grenfell happened and continues to happen, right? Because like nothing has changed. That her image was everywhere as this kind of voice of someone who was going somewhere, right? And who Hmm. was getting out. And so is a lost potential voice. Instead of actually seeing the tragedy as the fact that we're living in such a context where only the one who is going to get out can then be like exceptionalized in this type of way. Because for me, that's like, that's the actual tragedy, right? You know, there's a way in which, you know, really takes away from her art to kind of have it only ever thought about in relation to Grenfell Fire. So one thing that comes to my mind is, you know, when we have something like Khadija's work in an exhibition like this, Mm. is there a way in which this in of itself reinforces some of the misunderstandings around intersectionality and I mean Mm. that in the sense that I feel like perhaps diversity and inclusion has become the new way of approaching you know oppression and I wonder if intersectionality has been flattened and whether any of this makes life more livable for people like Khadija say who are still alive today yeah I, I think these are the questions we need to wrestle with like how are we actually 
creating space for people to like not only live but thrive right beyond black pain and suffering which is really the main um register through which people can like understand black life it's important to want inclusion or i can understand why some people want inclusion let me put it like that but it can never be it should never be our focus and so that's why i guess i'm a little bit like i don't really know how far an exhibition like this can go if it's not if it doesn't go along with action to prevent like another Grenfell from happening, right? Because the fact that like Khadija Saya could die in the way that she did in the time that she did tells us everything we need to know about like where we are in terms of women's right. rights. Yeah. It's very like obvious once you've said it that of course this is the question, right? Like you've reframed their intersectionality or not reframed it, but you kind of reinforced that this is about justice or it's about kind of ending the oppression and the violence that people experience. When I think about the way intersectionality, I see it being used as kind of maybe in a kind of more colloquial mainstream women's movement. It often seems to focus on the identities of individuals Mm. rather than on the structures that kind of shape or even make those identities. And I think it would almost be a surprise, or I wonder if it would be a surprise to some people to to think about, you know, well, what structural violences created the Grenfell fire, mm. including, you know, government negligence, a hostile environment, the kind of structural decisions around kind of capital and who, what resources go where, who gets to live where in a borough, all these questions that almost appear bureaucratic, mm. appear kind of not important to the fire, are the questions of intersectionality. These are the questions about material conditions people live in. And so when I see intersectionality being used, I want to kind of direct people back to the looking at the oppressions themselves, right? And do you also feel like maybe there's a focus too much on the, like, the black Muslim woman rather than the kind of white supremacy, Islamophobia, (laughs) like, you know, like that kind of angle? Like, what do you think? Also, like, people just don't like to say white supremacy. That's what it comes down, like, they really don't want to talk about white supremacy, right? Because it forces them to look at themselves. Because I agree in terms of the way uh, intersectionality is picked up and used, which also, for me, runs counter to the arguments that Kimberly Crenshaw herself was making in her original papers, right? Like she said specifically several times that everyone's identity is intersectional. That's not the point. The point is erasure. The point is whose lives are devalued because of the specific intersections that are erased from our conception of mm. like laws and societies. You know, you mentioned earlier white supremacy is, you know, is this thing that people find really hard to name and yet it's everywhere and it kind of shapes and uh, organizes our institutions. So I know people will be thinking like, what can institutions like the British Library, what can they be doing and what would that provocation be if we could give one? Yeah, move money, move resources into actually doing the work that we need to do at this point in time. Like there are people who are working in the renters union um, who have been doing phenomenal work, but who also need to be funded to do the work that they're doing. And I think the role of these institutions that have played a role in our brutal oppression is to then actually create space and create resources which allow us to actually explore all of the different ways in which we deserve to be and all of the different ways in which we deserve to be cared for. Yeah, wow, that's really powerful. And I feel like predominantly with women of colour, thinking about women's rights and stuff has often actually felt apart from these theoretical questions are much more rooted in just like very much practices of care. Mm -hmm. And that to me is where I kind of, the idea of like women's rights is very much salvaged for me in Mm -hmm. in those spaces of care and what I have experienced there. And so I just wanted to ask you, like what's your relationship to feminism? Do you call yourself a feminist? Does that matter? How do you feel about that? (laughs) 
How do you feel about about that bad boy? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) not great. Um, When I was growing up, so I grew up in Denmark, and I remember when I first was introduced to feminism and my mom was just like, nah, feminism is just not free. It's not for us. It's not for us. Because the one, like the feminists that we saw on TV more often than not were the feminists like advocating for Muslims to like take off their hijab, right? Right. Um, And so the feminists that she was seeing on the screens were the ones who were actually like perpetuating violence and oppression. And I don't think enough white feminists really sit with what it means that like, I do not see you as an ally, that there at no point in time in history have you actually proven yourself to be an ally in terms of like what you are actually doing on the ground on a regular to actually like make my life more livable. And that comes back to this question of care, because if you show absolutely no care in the way that you relate to me on a daily basis because you didn't know and then expect us to work off of the basis of some common ground around womanhood when I have never been included in the category Mm -hmm. of women as you define it, then, like, what's the purpose? Um, So when it comes to, like, feminism, I guess I'm always very specific about, like, defining myself as a Black feminist. And defining myself as a Black feminist, I feel, already sets me up to have different conversations from, like, what mainstream feminism is doing. Yeah, that makes full sense. And I think rather than somebody who, like, can say all the words, can kind of, like, drop intersectionality as a frame and do all the talking, you know, somebody who can actually just greet me as human, right, and just see me as human. And I think when we think about intersectional histories, if we had to Mm. rely on what's seen as the archives of history, the annals of what great women did, then we just wouldn't be present at all. And so, of course, we rely on these other evidences and knowledges. I was talking to Polly at the beginning about my poem, This Is Not a Humanizing Poem, which is in the Mm. exhibition. And, Mm. you know, that poem is something that I I often come back to because I think for me, that was one of the moments in my life where for the first time I recognized the only reason I'm looking for evidence is because I'm perpetually answering to a gaze that is not my own. Yeah. I don't know. I always think about like the first time I heard this is not a humanizing poem. And so my friend Mariam Jamila was the one who showed it to me and was like just super excited. And it was another one of those moments where we like, yeah, where we just felt seen. Right. Because there's something about like the way that you I love your. Yeah. Your face is just, oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for the flowers. Um, But it is like it is a moment of like. No, these this is not the conversation I want to be having. And the fact that I'm even engaging right now is a part of the problem, you know? Mm. Um, and so, yes, this kind of, you know, the specter of like white supremacy, the violence of white supremacy, the violence that we're constantly having to speak back to of a white gaze in so many different ways is always like there, but it doesn't stop us from doing what we know that we need to do in this moment. Mm. So there's a need to be a bit gentle with ourselves, right? So on no, the one uh, hand... Yeah care right right yes yeah (laughs) no i appreciate that yeah thank you i was totally gripped by sahima's and azizat's conversation particularly when they were talking about the exhibition and exhibitions more generally i rejoined the discussion as they were wrapping up thank you both for that wonderful conversation um there are so many there are so many moments when you were talking where you were talking about the exhibition and i was sort of acutely aware and and listening thinking about the kind of 
the challenge of doing an exhibition at all, the challenge of doing an exhibition around this subject, that it's always been a gesture, the sort mm. of problems of representation, all these things mm. that you're wrestling with. So I really was grateful to you for the sort of lens that you put on some of those problems. And I was hoping with the exhibition that it would open up spaces for conversations and for debate and for dissent. I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to ask, what would your dream exhibition be? What would it look mm. like? So right now I'm working with the Museum of the Home, right? And so like, what does it mean for us to develop, yeah, exhibitions that actually like are trying to care for Black people in a different way? And so in that case, we're always talking about like, yes, particular objects or a particular curated exhibit or whatever, but we're also actually talking about like, activism. We're getting people to get involved. So there's a real push to actually ask while they are there to sign things, to join up to a various organizations, to start thinking about how this exhibition is actually going to inform like activism, some form of commitment. Because yeah, that's what's needed in this moment. After Azizat left the call, I wanted to hear Sahima's thoughts. What I really appreciate about Aziza is that you can't just come with a concept and we're going to kind of take it at face value. And I think the way that she really made us unpack what it means even to talk about intersectionality, what does it mean to talk about intersectionality in this context? And I think you're right that you brought to this podcast, these conversations, these layers, that before you could in a way even start talking, you had to bring into the frame, you know, the fact that you're doing a podcast for the British Library, you know, very challenging and really interesting around all of that before you even start into the kind of what's intersectionality question, which is just you can't get there or you can't yeah. have that before you bring those things into the conversation. Yeah, and I think that I think that's the way it has to be. And I, you know, I think it's a kind of myth that we have about the kind of neutrality you can have in conversations. And when we're thinking, as we have been through this whole podcast, about this idea of intersectionality, this this is a frame, I just wondered if you could finally reflect on how useful you think it is at this moment. You know, having had both these conversations now, I really feel like intersectionality is a framework that we we should just be using. It's not something that should be the beginning or end of our politics. It should be the kind of natural middle point. We should be able to look at the world, understanding multiple oppressive forces. I really like what Gail was saying about that not being the end of her politics, that then actually where her politics is, is, is beyond that framework. That framework is just a way to articulate what we see. And then it is up to us to choose what do we do about that. And I think that really felt like it articulated to me what I have always known to be true, but not necessarily being able to express that intersectionality is just a way to see the world. And I think the real responsibility we have is what do we do with intersectionality? Where does it leave me? And that's a question I you know, would ask to the listeners of this podcast too. Where do we go now we know what intersectionality can do for us? And will it make us more invested in one another's lives, even where we do not know those experiences directly? And that I think is the real power. That's the kind of the kernel of, of truth that I want us to tap into. So much to think about after hearing from today's speakers, Sahima Manzur Khan, Gail Lewis, and Azizat Johnson. For more information about anything you've heard in today's episode, head to the British Library website or visit the exhibition when it's open again. This has been Unfinished Business, a Pixie production for the British Library. 
I'll leave you with some final words from Sahima, and this is not a humanizing poem. Isn't it really guilty until proven innocent? How can we kill in the name of saving lives? How can we illegally detain in the name of maintaining the law? I can't write it. I put my pen away. I can't, I won't write it. Is this radical? Am I radical? Because there is nowhere else left to exist now. <laughs>